0: I'll say that again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners from around the US and the Big Apple and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens. But Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, it's a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, we explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows like tonight, we look at an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, who had some interesting history with the city, about half of them. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in New York. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. We've explored our public libraries. We have three systems, by the way, the subway, public art, our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, you can hear each show on podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Yes, and Amazon. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to take a special journey. It's actually uh, one of my favorite topics in New York and one that fills me with joy, Uh, maybe even a little bit more joy than baseball, which we talked about last week. Stores, department stores, temples of retail. Most of us love them. So many of us were introduced to them as very young children, even babies. For me, growing up in New York, uh, some of my earliest memories uh, involved my mother uh, sort of pushing me through some of the great lobbies of some of the great um, department stores in New York. And some of them appeared bigger then than they do now in my adulthood. But anyway, um, so they are a place where so many of our senses get activated, new goods, of colors, of smells especially the first floor of so many in the fragrance department. Um, There are a lot of collective experiences that are more fun than going into department stores in this. Actually, I'm sorry, there are a few experiences that are more fun collectively than going through department stores. That is, if we're not doing it around holiday time or around some famous uh, holiday sale like Washington's birthday or President's Day, I should say. No, I'm dating myself. And of course, of any city in the U.S. and perhaps the world, We have an amazing collection of so many fabulous department stores here in New York, many of which are no longer with us, but which still live on in many people's memories and also in our pride, especially in the amazing stores that we have in this amazing city. Uh, My guest tonight, my only guest is my friend and the show's special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast. He provides creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. We'll have to ask him if any major department stores have used uh, Landmark Branding services. Uh, David's hosted a Room at the Top series. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David does writing. He writes. He has blogs. His latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue, from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem, where the Harlem Armory is. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, I always say a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York, but especially with this great topic we're going to talk about tonight, shopping and department stores.
1: Thanks a lot, Jeff. Always a pleasure to be here and great to be speaking with you again.
0: Um, many of our listeners know what your background is, um, but you haven't been on the show in a while, uh, and as we do have a growing number of listeners, especially overseas, um, and it's been a while since you've been on the show, uh, I'd like to ask you about your background. You're from the area, but not the city itself, at least not originally.
1: Yes, I was actually born in uh, Long Island, and that's where I lived for the first sort of 12 years of my life before we moved up to the Hudson River Valley uh, to be sort of closer to my grandmother's family. And I've always been a New York City area resident. I've lived in the city after college extensively. But, uh, yeah, so throughout, you know, that, that whole area. We, we've actually never left New York State, however, as a place to live, which is kind of interesting.
0: Mm. Well, it is the Empire State. And, you know, if we are uh, the greatest city in the United States – We have to be the greatest state in the United States, you know, -hmm. (laughs) and actually on this island, we're New York County in New York City in New York State. I think that's unique in in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, David, you're an aficionado and expert in New York's architectural history, um, some of which we will be speaking about tonight. Although people, when they think about New York architecture, they tend not to think of department stores. Um, How did you get interested in architectural history and in New York's in particular? Well,
1: um, growing up, my siblings and I were the first actual employees of New York State uh, for the Parks Department. We had jobs, quote-unquote, roles that we played at the Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island, where we would dress up in the costumes of children from the 1850s and play with the games and toys associated with that era. And we would do that for the the sort of special holidays that they had at Old Bethpage. Uh, We really enjoyed that. And, you know, going out to a village restoration museum you're seeing all these old buildings you're learning about how they were built and who built them it kind of helped sort of build an interest in me i think that's lasted my entire life Uh, my grandmother had a historic home that was right on the hudson river um, you know, it was a, just a very beautiful place. And I think visually we had a lot to work with as kids. And for me, that translated into a, a real interest in my immediate environment. So, um, you know, just from, from that day to this, I've always been interested in the stories that buildings tell. Uh, I majored in art history with a focus on architectural history um, uh, at college. And um, yeah, so I've gone into the field. Um, after about 17 years in the art world, and I haven't looked back.
0: And now we're on to department stores, which I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, Was the department store invented in New York, David? The department stores we know it today?
1: It sort of arose in different locations. I wouldn't say that New York was the place where the department store was actually invented. We have to share that with Paris, uh, with New York, and with certain other major cities in the United States. Uh, such as Boston, the, the the department store sort of was an outgrowth of what was called a dry goods store. And those actually became more popular, perhaps, in the, in the U.S. than they were in Europe, because in Europe there were specialty stores that kind of took over what we would call certain departments. A department store is called a department because it handles more than one thing. And dry goods are things that are non-perishable. So they could be, in terms of food, things like candy or coffee or canned goods, but they were also things like material. They were uh, dresses and bonnets and ribbons. They were articles for the household, pots and pans. They were furniture. Uh, they were sort of as many things as you could think of. So department stores are stores that contain Different types of dry goods that you can buy. There's the sewing department. There's the household goods department. There's, you know, the automotive department. There's the television department. All of those things grew out of the sense of the dry goods having more than one special thing that they focused on. And that was more of an American thing than a European thing because we were a we were a newer country. And B, it was easier to go from, let's say, the farm into town and try and do as much shopping as you could in one area. The general store carried a general surplus of things. And that's the dry goods store that then became the department stores as, this, as the cities began to evolve and everything got bigger.
0: What was the city's first department store?
1: Uh, In in this case, most people would argue that the very first one in New York City uh, was A.T. Stewart's. Uh, This was a dry goods store that was founded in the 1830s and expanded very rapidly. Um, Alexander Turney Stewart was the gentleman behind it. He opened up a mercantile business on Broadway. It began to prosper, lower Broadway. And he had what was built uh, what became known as the Marble Palace on the site of a building called Washington Hall, which was the former headquarters of the Federalist Party. Now, this was kind of a a new thing. Dry goods stores were large and they were getting bigger, but Stewart wanted something that really looked grand. He wanted something that fit in with the civic architecture that was directly across the street. This building is literally across the street from the new courthouse that was being built during that time period, from City Hall, which was just a half block south facing City Hall Park. So he builds a building that actually has this kind of monumental quality to it. It's the first building in New York City to be built from what is called Tuckahoe marble and it is also one of the very first buildings to have an italian renaissance theme throughout it so it's a very distinguished looking building the inside was also very grand and stewart's department store Uh, featured a number of real innovations at the time uh, designed to increase kind of the volume of turnover and keep up with the increasing capacity of industrial manufacturing. So he is among the very first to set fixed prices for goods. You don't have to barter. You don't have to come in and say, you know, can I get a deal on this and that? if I buy this, I'll get that and the other thing. He also drew female customers and began to target women as customers through special sales and also fashion shows. He is potentially the first department store anywhere to actually host a series of fashion shows so these things begin to drive the department store forward as a place for genteel people and particularly genteel women to go and have a kind of a a cultural experience or an experience about fashion as opposed to simply buying you know stopping by and buying the things that they really needed all of a sudden this becomes a kind of a luxury experience and that is very important for the development of the department store as we understand it through the 19th and 20th centuries mm-hmm.
0: Well, speaking about old New York department stores and about Stewart specifically, um, you know, and in a city that uh, where 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 we keep tearing things down and building new things up is that many of the old department stores are still there, even if they're no longer occupied by the stores originally. And that is true for the original A.T. Stewart, because you can still see it. And uh, you describe the structure and it's right across the street from the Tweed Courthouse. And it's great. And it's great to see um then during the civil war the store moved uptown which in those days was ninth street um how did it differ from the original a.t stewart
1: it was. It's very interesting. In 1862, uh, Stewart's True Department Store, the one that most people would remember, "quote unquote," if they're talking about Stewart's, uh, it's referred to as the Iron Palace, and that was built that year. It was a six-story building, so it was about the same size as the Marble Building downtown, and it was made out of cast iron. It had a huge cast iron front. It had a glass domed skylight. Uh, it was a very grand-looking building. It was almost transparent. It had a very sort of birdcage-like appearance unlike the marble building um up to 2,000 people were employed in this store and it occupied a major portion of an entire city block just south of Grace Church on Broadway uh from 9th Street to 10th Street Astor Place to Broadway there were 19 departments which included silks, dress goods, carpets, and toys uh And uh, by 1877, it had expanded to 30 departments carrying a wide variety of items. Um, The New York Times noted at one point, uh, in some, I think, wonderment at how much this was evolving into, as I said, a single place for people to shop, quote unquote, a man may fit up his house there down to the beddings, carpets and upholstery. So uh, this store, unfortunately, caught fire um, during a renovation in the 1950s and burned to the ground. So we don't have it. It was otherwise a very singular work of cast iron architecture. Ironically, the reason why they chose cast iron was they felt that it was fireproof. And it isn't.
0: Surprise, surprise.
1: (laughs) You get a building hot enough and the cast iron will actually begin to melt and fall away into pieces.
0: And that's what happened with with, with Stuart. Um, David, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes. But before we do that, I want to talk about one of the store um, Siegel and Cooper. Many people don't know of Siegel and Cooper. I know of some I knew of some historic department stores, but I hadn't heard until Siegel and Cooper until recently. What was it? Who, how did it start? Siegel
1: and Cooper uh, is actually a very interesting thing because it's one of the uh, the few really monumental instances during this period where we have evidence of what we call sort of a flash in the pan. This was a store that rose and fell. It was wildly popular at its height in almost less than a 25 year period. Most of these stores actually continued for 60, 70, some of them going on for 100, 120 years. And this store was founded in the 1890s with the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Um, It was highly successful there and they went to new york two years later 1895 and they have the architects dilemmas of chords built an enormous structure which is still largely intact there in a very sort of ornate kind of almost steampunk renaissance revival style it's a rather bizarre looking building and they managed by you know 1905 i think the, the company was already sort of in trouble and by 1915, it was simply gone. But uh, by the in the interim, it had grown to 124 different departments. Uh, they were the only department store to have a dentist and doctor's office. They had their own beautician and barber shop, a post office. They had an office for theater tickets, much like the tickets booth that's in Times Square. And they they had a branch bank located in the store. There was a huge fountain by Daniel Chester French, who did the famous statue. of abraham lincoln and the lincoln memorial and ladies would say well let's meet under the fountain and they met let's go to siegel cooper and we'll have a day you know sort of a genteel day of elegant shopping in this kind of amazing arcaded wonderland Um, the building is now still open for shops there are actually three different department stores that share space there Uh, so it's one of the rare instances where a store of this magnitude has been kind of repurposed again as a shopping destination although nowhere near at the level that Siegel Cooper was when it was at its height.
0: Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Siegel Cooper. Um, We will take that break now uh, and we'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
0: We're back to episode 111 in Rediscovering New York uh, about department stores. My guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who's also our show's special consultant. David, before we move on from Siegel & Cooper, let's talk about its opening day. It sounds like it was the most fabulous opening day of any business in the world up until that point. Uh,
1: Yes. The uh, store was was actually visited by nearly 150,000 people. Um, attempting to enter uh, there were 3,000 employees at that point waiting to serve them and there was sort of a a, a, a amazing kind of display of the, the 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 fountain that I mentioned by Daniel Chester French uh, it was brass with a face and arms and white marble and colored lights illuminated the fountain uh, it is currently in the Glendale cemetery actually in California it was salvaged from the store and moved there as a permanent fixture um, and in addition to the expected goods, which of course were things like silver, linens, clothing and China, for example, uh, Siegel Cooper also sold groceries, uh, which was sort of an an odd thing for a department store to do. Again, we're looking at the division between wet goods and dry goods, and a lot of them were delicacies, uh, things that were actually canned on the premises for buyers. Um, In the fish department, there were huge tanks displaying live fish for the shoppers ease of choice. And on the roof, there was a vast concern that offered palms orchids and rare plants for sale so it was actually in some ways closer to the really sort of mega big box stores that we think of like Walmart where there are all sorts of different departments that include groceries and lawn care and you know outdoor things than it was you know almost any other department store that's been in New York since or before or since
0: well I'd like to ask you what happened to Siegel & Cooper and in that question, you know, when one big store goes down, another big store is going to rise and take away a lot of its business. Do you want to talk about what led to the downfall of Siegel & Cooper in New York?
1: Yes, 19, 1904, Henry Siegel, who was the, the sort of the progenitor, of course, of the store, uh, had financially overextended himself. He put too much of his money into making this store the kind of one stop wonderland that it was. And he was forced to sell his department store to a gentleman named Joseph Greenhut for five hundred thousand dollars which doesn't sound like a bad deal but you know uh, actually there's a sad moment where greenhut later reported that Siegel evidently wept during this transaction he was you know giving up something that he really felt was his baby in a way um, but Greenock's timing, however, turned out to be bad. Siegel wound up getting very much the better part of the bargain uh, because by 1902, Roland Macy's had removed his business, a place called Macy's, of course, uptown to 34th Street and built a block-encompassing store there that took away the title of largest department store from Siegel Cooper. Uh, they actually used the same architect, which must have been a little bit of a, a kick in the, uh, in the butt um little by little the shopping district followed this behemoth and sort of by the time 1915 rolled around um siegel cooper failed he reorganized and uh, reopened green Eyed, under green lasting lasted only another three years closing for good in 1918 people were simply no longer shopping at that level on that particular stretch of sixth avenue and one of the reasons why that stretch of architecture has been sort of quote-unquote frozen in aspect for so long is because so much of the commercial focus moved further and further up into midtown. So a lot of the older department stores that were closer to the dry goods stage of things have survived architecturally, and some of those have been reopened as major department stores in and of themselves in the last you know 20 or 30 years.
0: Hmm. Well, now that we're speaking about Macy's, do you want to talk a little bit about Macy's um, background? I mean, we could, David, we could spend a whole show talking about Macy's. Yeah, <laughs> but, Macy's
1: could know. be could be an entire show in and of itself. Um, it had several different locations before it was settling at. Um, 34th Street was originally named the H, the um, R.H. Macy and Company Store. Uh, the Macy's building, as I said, was completed in 1902 and has been added to the National Register of Historic Places. It was made a National Historic Landmark in 1978. Um, it was founded by Roland Hussey Macy between 1843-1855, opened four retail dry goods store, including the original Macy's store in downtown Haverhill, Massachusetts. The Macy's family, are from Massachusetts and they are from Nantucket they are whale a whaling family and if you go to Nantucket uh, to this day there are the Macy houses line certain streets of the small village of Nantucket Um, so uh, the star for example that is associated with the Macy's department store the famous red star was actually a tattoo that Macy himself had acquired during his seagoing days and he just that into the logo of the store as a kind of you know his own personal stamp of approval, which I think is very amusing. Um, so the first day of business in 1858 in New York City was actually at the corner of 14th Street and Sixth Avenue. They did not do particularly well. Um, they made eleven dollars, that's the equivalent of three hundred and twenty-six dollars today, which actually is not enough to really keep the lights on. Uh, but moving the the store up further uptown and just expanding it, Macy really kind of, I think, hit on a, a kind of a, he caught lightning in a bottle in a way. It was a new location. It was definitely a very imposing store. Uh, there's a rumor that unfortunately has gone sort of um, unproven that the small corner of macy's that actually faces 34th and herald square Uh, you'll notice if you look at the building that the building seems to go around something there was a small building there that was a holdout That person did not want to sell their store to Macy's, and so they rented the facade of it, and they put that huge shopping bag billboard up around it, and they did later acquire the building itself. It's now, I think, Interior Offices for Macy's. It was called the Million Dollar Corner because that's what Macy had to pay in order to get that real estate, but he wasn't doing it on $11 a day, that's for sure, by the time that 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 happened, so...
0: By the time they purchased that, the rest of the store had been built around it. So, uh, yes, exactly. Actually, it looked it looks quite cute there on the corner, you <laughs> know, little tiny building, you know, in the middle. <laughs> it, uh, it works somehow. You
1: know, it's like uh-huh. a great sort of pop art sort of. Well, what ha- what happened here? Well, it was it was a- an architectural holdout, is what it was.
0: Well, let's talk about something that Macy's does, which uh, to me is one of the brilliant things about uh, about branding for a major department store. Uh, it has it hosts one of the most famous parades in the world, and it bears the Macy's moniker.
1: Yes, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York. Uh, this is actually the world's largest parade, um, which sort of surprised me when I started looking into its history. Uh, presented, of course, by the Macy's department store. The parade started in 1924. It was not the first Thanksgiving Day parade. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, coming up. Uh, And there was also there were were two parades that predated it, but it is the longest running parade in the United States. And it's tied for second oldest uh, Thanksgiving parade in the United States with the Thanksgiving, America's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the city of Detroit, which is actually held by the municipality of Detroit. Um, So the three hour parade is held in Manhattan. It starts on Central Park West, I believe, up at 81st Street near the Museum of Natural History and concludes in Herald Square outside of the Grand Facility of the Macy's flagship store. Um, It has been televised nationally on the NBC network since 1953, and all employees at Macy's department stores across the country have the option of choosing to march in the parade. So it's definitely sort of something where they're able to kind of take the day off if they want to travel and they can participate in putting on the parade um, as assistants and volunteers.
0: Were the famous balloons, David, always part of the parade? When did they uh, get introduced? They they were introduced very
1: early on, surprisingly early. Uh, In 1928, they replaced a parade of live zoo animals Uh, because people thought, well, it's not really safe to have, you know, zoo animals traipsing around, and what do we do with them once the parade is over? Um, So there was a designer called Sarg, uh, who created these large animal-shaped balloons, and they were produced by the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio, from the 1920s through the year 1980. Um, The first year that they did this, there was no procedure that they came up with to deflate these things, so they let them just fly away, which I think, must have caused some alarm in outlying communities as these, you know, gigantic dragons and cats and mice and whatnot to sort of float over your town. But there you go. <laughs> um, in 1928, five of the larger balloons were designed and filled with helium to rise above 2,000 feet and then slowly deflate for whomever was lucky enough to capture the contestants in what was called Macy's balloon race. And then they would be returned for a reward that was equivalent to more than $1,500. And this lasted until 1932. I think it was sort of discovered that when these things deflated gradually, they actually did create a sort of a hazard or a nuisance if they happened to float down into a traffic intersection or wind up on top of City Hall somehow. So mm. they stopped doing it.
0: Well, so in addition talk about the mother, uh, the, something being the mother of invention. Uh, something
1: like that. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so in,
1: in addition to the balloons and floats, the parade also features live music and performances. And it always ends with Santa Claus. And Santa Claus is something that uh, basically Macy's really sort of, had under its wing as a uh, part of the branding process, uh, Macy's as the inventor of the department store Santa. Oh,
0: wow! All right. right. Well, sorry. Oh, that's the film Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Street. Right, right. Um. All right. Well, David, we're going to take a short break. Uh, And when we come back, we're going to start the second half of the program talking about uh, a then-major competitor of Macy's, which is no longer here, but which uh, a good many of our audience may have heard of, especially as depicted in that famous film, Miracle on 34th Street. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift,
4: educate, empower.
0: And you're back to Rediscovering New York in our episode 111 on New York's department stores, past and present. Our guest is David Griffin from Landmark Branding. Uh, Support from our program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495 0317. You can like this show on Facebook and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to the second half of the show on shopping and department stores, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate. When I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into out of or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, tell us a little bit about Landmark Branding and, and some of the projects that you're working on recently.
1: Uh, Sure thing, Jeff. So I founded Landmark Branding in 2013, and it is a marketing support service for real estate professionals, be they brokers, developers, architects, designers. Uh, I do everything from VIP tours to writing listings, uh, histories, and web content for my clients, and also developing sort of special outreach projects and programs for them, Uh, be that things such as mailings or bringing people together for a panel on a particular subject. So I offer a very diverse range of subjects, uh, sort of, and services. Uh, You can find out more on my website, as you said, which is www www.landmarkbranding.com. The blog that you mentioned, Every Building on 5th, is also on that website. Uh, I've written for Brownstoner, uh, for Metropolis, Dwell, and for Real Estate Weekly, and continue to do so. I am currently in the process of designing and launching a second blog uh, titled, To Be Determined, on architecture around the country and uh, i'm also uh, working on a project that will be a history of the penthouse as a new york and american architectural type so a lot of things kind of um uh, under construction as it were and yeah looking forward to moving forward in this year as you know we sort of reemerge from the pandemic with luck and uh back into a, a sort of more public mode of discourse shall we say
0: I'm looking forward to seeing your work on the penthouse. I've uh, seen you produce other content about penthouses, and it's fascinating, not to mention really dreamy to uh, imagine oneself living in these in these great spaces. Um, back to department stores, Gimbal's, they were a major competitor to Macy's once upon a time, weren't they?
1: Yes, so much so. That there was at one point the phrase, does Macy's tell Gimbal's when someone didn't want to release information that they felt was inappropriate. Uh, Gimbel's was a, uh, a major rival to Macy's, and yet uh, they it's a very kind of interesting story. Uh, the company was founded by a, a young immigrant, Adam Gimbel, um, who opened a general store in Indiana. And then, as many of these people did, Macy being one of them, for example, Siegel, Cooper, another, he moved gradually to New York City, which was the, the sort of the, the lexus of, of capitalism and of shopping, um, so he relocates to New York City and founds a flagship store. Um, he acquired a building that was opposite Macy's and had Daniel H. Burnham, who was a well-known architect who designed the Flatiron Building, design the Gimbel's department store. Um, so there was a real rivalry between them and Macy's, of course. And to distinguish itself from Macy's, and other more luxurious quote unquote department stores that were then rising along Fifth Avenue. Gimbal's advertising promised settle, no, select, don't settle. In other words, they promise a greater range of merchandise overall. Um, Gimbal's had seven flagship stores throughout the country by 1930 and sales of $123 million, which would have been $1.9 billion today across 20 stores. This made Gimbal Brothers, the largest department store corporation in the world at the time. By 1953, sales had risen to 300 million, 2.9 billion today. And in 1962, Gimbals acquired a number of competitors throughout the country. Gimbal's principles and merchandise sought to reflect what they considered the ideals of middle-class America. In other words, a lot of these department stores were what we now call aspirational. They they sort of provided a quote-unquote upper-class fantasy of shopping, or that was the general theme, and Gimbal's did not. Um, They were seeking to attract shoppers to a store who could also sort of fit their budgets. They kept the store very plain architecturally inside and out. Um, Their programming was far less extravagant than some of their competitors. And Gimbal's used the slogan from time to time, you know, the customer pays for fancy frills. In other words, he's providing you with a plain kind of progenitor of the big box store uh, not quite Sears which had a similar approach but was more mail catalog oriented. Gimbel's was still a department store but it wasn't intended to be a highfalutin destination it was a place where you went in and you bought thumbtacks and jam and other household necessities. It was actually closer in spirit to the original dry goods stores in that way Um, In 1925 Gimbel's linked its Herald Square store to an acquired annex across the street to the south and I want to talk a little bit about something that new yorkers can still admire to this day which is this gorgeous copper bridge three stories tall that bridges over the, that street was created by richmond h shreve and william f lamb and this was a cutting-edge art deco project for two architects who would then go on to assist in the designing of a much more famous building on 34th street and 33rd street the empire state building on fifth avenue right down the block <laughs> exactly Um, Whatever happened to Gimbals, David? Uh, I think in the long run, uh, there's a lot of different, you know, sort of theories about what caused this to happen. But Gimbals, sort of focusing on a more austere approach, wound up, I think, kind of shooting them in the foot in a a little bit. It's sort of like, well, if, if we're really just going to have a plain dry goods approach to this why am i going all the way into the middle of new york city in order to to shop here there's no there's no sense of destination in other words um but they were acquired in the 1960s by another store and because they've been sort of passing out of fashion uh by 1986 the uh, the, own, the new owners decided to close the gimbals division and sell all the store properties so that was sort of the end of that
0: Ooh. Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about Wanamakers and their branch in New York. Uh, They were originally founded in Philadelphia. And uh, when did they extend their reach into New York City?
1: Uh, In 1896, the store was founded in the post-Civil War period in Philadelphia, as you pointed out. And they have a magnificent building there. Anyone who's visiting Philadelphia, you know, once buildings become open again, I highly suggest taking a look at Wanamaker's. It's about a block away from City Hall in Center City, Philadelphia. And it has one of the largest pipe organs in the world constructed, um, ever constructed, installed within. So Philadelphia, the Philadelphia store used to give organ concert music recitals to to visitors and shoppers as they were you know, perusing the departments. Um, they opened up a, another store, also very grand, in New York City, having acquired the A.T. Stewart's business. So the old iron store that I mentioned, they built a new annex across the street from that to the north. Between the Iron Palace and Grace Church is the Wanamaker's building. And that is also by Daniel H. Burnham. Uh, it really is a superb piece of architecture it's very austere but it's extraordinarily beautifully proportioned and it's you know marble inside and out it's sort of a reference to the tucker marble palace that stewart himself had founded down on broadway um it didn't last particularly long unfortunately and um You know, the Wanamakers did close down. Uh, The building is now occupied on the ground floor and the basement floor by a Kmart, I believe. And the upper floors have been reconfigured as offices, but it was a very grand piece of architecture in its day.
0: Hmm. Well, let's move down the block uh, from Macy's before we take a short break and let's talk about uh, another major department store that went up on 5th Avenue and 34th Street. The building of course which is still there but not the store anymore. And I'm referring to the famous B Altman.
1: Yes. Um Thought by some people to be the most architecturally significant of the department stores ever constructed in New York City, uh, B. Altman was a luxury department store right from the get-go, founded in 1865 by Benjamin Altman. And its flagship store, the B. Altman and Company Building, uh, stands at 5th Avenue and 34th Street. This is another store that did have other locations prior to that. Um, this building uh, was designed in 1902 to 1906, and it was built with an Entirely marble facade. Again, it's a reference to the Tuckahoe marble of the Marble Palace by A. T. Stewart. But Trowbridge and Livingston were the designers of this store, and that's very significant because Trowbridge and Livingston, although most people don't know them as an architectural firm, were responsible for many of the great Fifth Avenue mansions. And Altman wanted his house, his his apartment. Store To have the sort of the pedigree of a Fifth Avenue mansion. He wanted it to fit in architecturally. So they produced a very restrained, but at the same time, very opulent building inside and out. And some of that does survive in its current incarnation. It's owned by, I believe, New York University um so uh it really wasn't actually the city
0: university of so. new york has its graduate center oh, yes, okay, there thank
1: yes. you i forget what the department is that's down there but they've retained the elevator doors some of the chandeliers and other interior details um other things for example charleston gardens which used to be a um an actual restaurant modeled after a charleston south carolina villa and its garden have been removed of course but um it, it is still a, a, quite a quite a striking building
0: mm. Well, David, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak about four more stores in our last segment. If we can get through all of this wonderful content, Uh, we'll take a short break and we'll be back in a moment.
4: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC Uplift, Educate, Empower.
0: back to episode 111 in rediscovering new york uh in our show on new york's famed department stores past and present my guest is david griffin founder and ceo of landmark branding and also our program special consultant thank goodness for special consultants for shows like this david it's good to have you back yes um, thank you, Jeff. moving a couple of blocks up from b altman uh, let's take a brief visit to another fifth avenue department store that recently closed and i'm referring to lord and taylor
1: yes yeah really sort of a shame uh, i used to work more or less across the street from lord and taylor and it was actually really helpful to have it there uh it was just nice to be able to go into that store and pick up you know items that you know i felt that i might need at some point or another they also had a wonderful restaurant up on the top floor that i remember visiting several times So uh, Lord & Taylor was uh, founded in 1826, again, as a dry goods store. It moves up Fifth Avenue as B. Altman opens up that section of the city for commercial retail. They settle into a very elegant building by Start and Van Vleck, who become the sort of preeminent department store architects in this part of New York City. And uh, for generations, Lord & Taylor helped define Christmas in New York. It was the city's first department store to turn its big sidewalk windows into animated theatrical holiday displays, and I believe it was the first such store in the world to do so. Uh, Then tourists would line up and and see these windows sort of transformed into enchanted forests, gingerbread palaces, wintry cityscapes. They actually added motion to some of these. Um, In 1938, there was an unseasonably warm November, for example, and Lord and Taylor created a snow quote-unquote blizzard behind glass using fans and cornflakes with signs announcing winter is coming sooner or later. So a little bit pre-Game of Thrones and maybe more cheerful than that uh, turned out to be. Um, but I still remember the Lord and Taylor window displays, even when I was you know working in New York City very close by. You'd, you know, just take a break and, uh, you know, after work, go out when it was dark out, just take a look at those gorgeous windows that they used to have. It was really sort of an icon and it helped build that entire type of culture up and down Fifth Avenue from Lord and Taylor all the way to Tiffany's.
0: And uh, didn't the window displays at Lord & Taylor inspire another kind of creative window display uh, up further up Fifth Avenue on 49th and 50th Street?
1: Are we talking about uh, Saks Fifth Avenue? Yes,
0: or uh, sometimes yes. known in a particular movie as Blacks Fifth Avenue, but we'll call right. it Saks because that's what it was.
1: Saks Fifth Avenue is, again, a, a store by Starrett and Van Vleck, and it was designed really so that the ground floor windows became the, the, the primary attraction. That's not the case in stores like um, uh, Macy's, for example. The ground floor window displays are negligible. Uh, but at uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, the the sort of corners of the building facing fifth avenue at 49th and at 50th are chamfered that means that they are cut triangularly so that they face the corner point as opposed to just the street and that means that you can even across the street sort of ascertain what are in those windows and it's, it really becomes a kind of a wraparound of glass at that first door and yes Sax with avenue Picked up what on on what Lord and Taylor did, and they just ran with it. I feel to this day that they are the the preeminent store for Christmas decoration in New York City. I haven't seen too much that's better elsewhere around the world. Um, and uh, inside and out, but basically, those windows are really masterpieces of of kind of technology and craft, and they have been for many many years.
0: How many locations was Saxon prior to becoming Saks Fifth Avenue? I don't know the number of
1: locations, but I do know that they were they were in numerous places. Uh, there is a Saks Fifth Avenue store that I believe is now the home of a museum, and I'm, unfortunately I'm blanking on the name of the museum, uh, but I believe that was on West 17th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Is it the Rubin Museum of Art? Yes, the Rubin Museum, thank you. That was originally a Saks location. And um, let's see, I I can't, there there was at least one other location before they moved to the, the current place on Fifth Avenue, but I can't remember the exact address.
0: And that brings us to, to me, one of the most iconic stores, which is no longer there, but was iconic also. Because of the artists who helped create some of the fabulous window displays, and I'm talking about Bonwit Teller. Yeah. Uh, when was when did Bonwit open? That I don't know. Uh, oh, I love stumping you, David. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not really.
1: I know that the original building was put up, the, the building that we're talking about was put up in the 1920s, and it's actually two different firms that worked on it. The first firm was Warren and Wetmore, who designed Grand Central Terminal. And this store that they created for Bonweteller was one of their rare essays in Art Deco, and it was very fabulously ornamented inside and out. And then sometime around 1927, 1928, the store decided maybe this is a little bit too over the top it's kind of competing with the things that we sell because they sold fine jewelry was really sort of their key item and uh, they hired Eli Jacques khan who i think is one of the greatest art deco architects of all time to come in and kind of give the store a bit of a makeover so he simplified the lines of in and wetmore's building he introduced um, works of sculpture and an incredible nickel grill. It was three stories tall above the main entrance. And unfortunately, the building is no longer there. It was torn down in 1982, 1983 uh, by a developer um, who happened to be named Donald J. Trump for Trump Tower. And uh, one of the things that I think people were very annoyed at at the time was the fact that Trump promised both the nickel plated grill and certain portions of the Art Deco sculpture to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and instead smashed the sculptures and stole, and evidently sold the grill itself for scrap value. Um, but the windows that Jeff is talking about are really remarkable because they were a store that hired artists in order to do their windows. And um, one of their first ones was um, actually... In 1929, Salvador Dali. Uh, So there was this kind of history of creative collaborations there. Dali's window was interesting because he had these sort of grotesque elements, wax hands holding mirrors, a bathtub that was filled with water and sort of upholstered in black mink and lambskin. There was a mannequin entering that tub in an outfit of green feathers, um, poster beds that were floating or had buffalo legs, um, wax mannequins sitting on beds of false coals that were on fire. So actually people were very off put off by this display this this window was not a success and so bonnet teller decided you know let's just start removing it and we'll put in you know more regular things dally found out about this hopped into a cab had a huge fight in the actual bonnet teller window he tried dragging his bathtub back into the window he slipped So did the tub, and the two of them went through the window and out onto the sidewalk of Fifth Avenue. So you can say it's the first time Dally really made a splash in New York. (laughs) What's with that incident? Um, There were other artists, of course, who worked with Bonwood Teller. Uh, Some became famous after they worked as window dressers. Others were well-known at the time. But for example, Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg collaborated on some very rare work, including some early sonotypes. Jasper Johns did a work called Blue Ceiling in 1955 that debuted at Bonwet Teller. Um, James Rosenquist was another artist associated with Bonwet Teller's windows. Um, He was employed as a billboard painter for a number of years before becoming a fine artist. And in 1959, he began designing the display windows for Bonwet Teller and Rauschenberg is the one who helped him actually get that job. Mm. Uh, Probably the most famous uh, window artist outside of Dolly in terms of the work itself kind of helping launch a career was none other than Andy Warhol, who was, of course, a fabric designer, fashion designer, uh, fashion artist, I should say, and a commercial artist for many years. Uh, specifically an illustrator. So in 1951, Bonwit Teller uh, hired Warhol to provide artwork for the shop's windows as an extension of his work. And um, they didn't realize, I think, that he had these kind of avant-garde pop sort of impulses. And Warhol's work was also not being very taken very seriously in New York at the time um 1961 10 years later brought a really big break the artist hung uh, hangs five paintings behind department store models and this was sort of a way where he announced the significance of his own artwork um they were lowbrow subjects It was kind of a cheeky take on commercialism comic book strips newspaper advertisements things that he had painted behind these very stylishly dressed figures uh, and playing very directly with the idea of art as advertising mm. so we can almost say that um Andy Warhol really got his start in the window of Barnwood Teller.
0: Well, David, we're out of time. Um, The one store that we can't talk about is Bergdorf's, which is a few blocks north of where Barnwood was, but it's still there for all to see. Well, David, thanks so much for being a guest on our show. Our guest today has been David Griffin from Landmark Branding, and uh, his uh, web address is www.landmarkbranding.com. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show about department stores in New York. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get in our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at york.nyc You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategies at Freedom Mortgage, and the Law Offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. And one more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Mark.
2: Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
4: Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the Nonprofit Sector Connector, coming at you from my attic Each week here on TalkRadio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on TalkRadio.nyc. Hi,
2: I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on TalkRadio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock. Every Thursday evening, the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi.